Romans, the 11th chapter. And last time, spent a lot of time reviewing and uh, don't intend to do that again. But we are concluding the, the doctrinal portion of Romans. And chapter 12 and following is the practical. How does this apply to the church's everyday life as they live and, and navigate a world? The God's truth is, you know, we've got an example and a picture. The United States has embassies and other countries have embassies in the U.S. And where that embassy sits inside those gates, that's, that's United States territory in a foreign country. And that's really what the church is. This is, this is the city and the people of God in the midst of a foreign and Gentile and unbelieving world. And God gives us direction on how we as... We're, we're not like the world. We're not of the world. But the church is those that's born again, born from above, regenerated by the Spirit of God and in whom God dwells in by the Spirit. And our lives are to be different. And God gives us direction... Uh, through that. But here we're concluding the part that God's done. Up to this point, what can you say that you've done out of all the 11 chapters of Romans? What, what work was left to me in any of these chapters? All through this, this has been the work of God. This is what God has done to bring us to life and salvation in Jesus Christ. If you want one thing to claim for you, you can claim that you sinned and fell into sin and you were deceived and deluded by sin. And there we were, hopeless, helpless, no chance of getting up, no chance of doing better. And from there it was God. It was God that awoke in our minds and our consciousness to sin. It was God that revealed the judgment that lied right in front of our pathway. It was God that revealed the Son Jesus whom God Himself gave for our sins. It was the Lord Jesus that gave Himself willingly for our sins. And it was God through the Spirit that brought us to Jesus through that conviction. It was God that changed our mind, that changed our heart, that changed our desires, that made us new creatures, that resurrected us, and that indwells us by the Spirit of God. All of that is a result of God's working, God's power. And God did this in such a way that there's nobody that receives glory for salvation other than Him. God uses the church, but the church isn't saving. God speaks through preaching, but the preacher isn't saving. God works in individual hearts. But it's not the individual saving themselves. It's God through all, above all, and in all. It's all God's work and to God be the glory. So that's what we saw in, in verse 32 here. God's concluded all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. So God's, God shut the whole world up in a place of condemnation. And did, did Jesus bring this about? Was, was this a, a new development that everybody was concluded and shut up here? 
know the truth is in Romans 1, 2, 3, the whole world is there, Jew and Gentile. They were concluded and shut up in sin, jailed together. And God shut man up there. God brings us to guiltiness that He might bring us to His Son, Jesus Christ. And so verse 33, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. So what words of praise and glory. And I thought of this verse in Isaiah 55. You know these by heart. My ways are not your ways. For my ways and my thoughts are as high as the heavens are above the earth, above yours. And if you ask man how far the heavens reach beyond the earth, there's man's unable to fathom that. And that's the way man is. Man's unable to fathom the, the riches and the depths of God's love and compassion and plan for redemption. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We're looking at at a being here, not a man like you and I are, but we're looking at God here that has all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. A God that, that knows all things. And man now, little, feeble, weak man would like to question this God whose ways are unsearchable. It is impossible that man attain the the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God for himself, even the, the most wise and the most learned. In comparison with the knowledge of God, what, what's the most that I can gain? And then compare that to what God knows. There's no comparison. Who is man to question Almighty God? What a plan and... How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. And of a truth, there would be no way that man could know any of these characteristics of God had God not manifested them unto man. God gave Paul. Paul says, I didn't receive this of man. I wasn't taught this. But God, by the working of the Spirit, has revealed His Son in me. God has saved me. God has caused me to learn these, the, the great wisdom of God. And, and all that we've got here through these first 11 chapters, we've got them through God revealing and manifesting to man His love, His compassion, His mercy, His grace and salvation, as well as His judgment, His, his righteousness. His straightness, His strictness. God can't vary from the law. God can't allow sin to slide by. But all things have to have a just recompense of reward. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? You know, there's a lot of times we think, well, we, we know what's best. I know what I would like and what I would like is what's best and God you are, you're operating this 
in a way that it's just not right for you to do like you're doing. Well, who knows the mind of the Lord? Or who's been His counselor? Who is able then to be God's counselor, to give counsel, to advise, to give advice to? I mean, should God come down and, and say, what, what do you think? How do you think that we ought to operate? What, what do you think that I ought to do here? You know what I can do? I can cast my care upon Him. I can lay it out before Him. But God, God is all-knowing. He's all-wise. His ways are as high as the heavens are above the earth. We shouldn't question when God begins to work. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been His counselor? Who hath first given to Him, and it shall be recompensed unto Him again? So now, the mind of the Lord then, we know the mind of the Lord by what God's revealed us. He reveals them unto us by His Spirit. What we know of God, God has allowed us and granted us to know. But what we know is such a small part of the grace and the power of God. Jesus said to Peter, Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Peter. You're blessed to know that. Because the majority of people in that country didn't know that, did they? But Peter, you're, you're not smarter than everybody else in the country. It's not because you've given your life to study and meditation upon the Scripture. It's not because... Now think, think about it now and, and put us there. We were not given to study and meditation of the Scripture to try to find God out nor were we in a place that, that we had made some great vow and we were trying to cut away sin and worldliness from us that we might seek and come to God and, and learn something of Him. The contrary, Peter was fishing like he had always done. And you and I were living as we had always lived. We had not made not one movement in the direction of God Almighty. And God blessed us, favored us with the revelation of Jesus Christ and who that He was, brought us to life and joy and salvation through His goodness, compassion, and power. There was no earning that on our part. God gifted that to us. And so this, this is revealed from God. This Even the knowledge of God comes from God. And he says, who at first... L let me stop there just for a second. It's not by the words that... It's not by the words that I would use that's going to help you to understand that. I thought wrongly about that for a long time. That if, if we could just... If we could explain it just right. And that if we could get it just in the right words and if we could frame it just the right way, maybe they would see it then. And I, I do believe that we ought to try to frame it as simple and as plain as we have the ability to do so. But it's not in the wisdom of man's words that gets man to come to God. 
It's not that, well, I need to say it just a little different and maybe that will get them because remember, this is the depths of the knowledge of God. God can take Paul the Apostle, a man that was learned under Gamal from a, a youth onward and that knew how to speak different languages that was eloquent in writing and eloquent in speech. God could take that man and present the gospel and you say, boy, that man, can he can shell out the corn. But he took Peter, James, and John as well who were ignorant and unlearned and just by talking with them, just by talking with them, you could sense that, that they were ignorant. They didn't know how to talk correctly. They didn't know big words. These were ignorant and unlearned men. You could sense it by speaking, and I, I know we've all been there. You've spoke with somebody and thought, boy, they, don't, they can't say suey at the hogs. <clears throat> well, that's what the Pharisees said. And the Sanhedrin, that's what they said about Peter and James and John. These boys can't say suey at the hogs. They're ignorant and they're unlearned. But you know what God did with them? God convinced people. So it wasn't the wisdom. It wasn't the framing of words. It wasn't man's ability. Because if it was, then I could say, well, you were gotten through my ability to explain the Scripture. You were gotten because, because I was able to frame it up the right way. And I gave it to you just how you needed it. And that's what got you. But the truth is, it doesn't matter who you sat under, how smart and learned they are, how well they can frame and explain it, the method and means of man coming to God is the Holy Ghost working in the heart. And until, the truth is, until the Holy Ghost begins to illuminate and lighten and draw, it'll be a joke to people no matter how smartly that it's put forward, how well it's presented, how plainly it's explained, until the Holy Spirit works and illumines the heart, man will continue in darkness and blindness and the gospel will mean nothing to them. Now that's great encouragement to somebody that's ignorant and unlearned. God will get the job done as He sees fit no matter what you are. God can work and will work through those that He's chosen and God chose Peter, James, and John to preach the gospel. Or who hath first given to Him and it shall be recompensed? So here's a question. Who's ever gave anything to God and God owes you back? Who's give to God something and God now owes something to you? That's, that's the way that salvation, being saved, going to heaven, that's the way it's presented. Not in those words, but over and over and over again, that's the way man thinks. That, well, they suffered a lot in this life. They did a lot of good. They were, they were philanthropists and they tried to help people out and do good. They were, they were a great, a great daddy. She was a great mother. And they tried to do good. And because of what they've done, because they've done this work, God now owes it to them that they would get to go to heaven. Is that not the way that man thinks? 
That's the way that man frames it up. But ain't it something now how good that sounds to the flesh, but when I say, who's give something to God and God owes you something back? When you say it simple and plain like that, it, we all shook our heads no. We don't, God don't owe me anything. Because what, what have I give to Him? But you know where we are today? We're living in an entitled world. A world where, well, if you don't give me a check, then I'm going to be angry because really I deserve your money. And I deserve your property. And I deserve what you've worked for. I deserve what you've paid for. You don't deserve it. You've got insurance, What? blah, blah, blah. A world that is entitled to everything with no effort put forth to obtain it. We want to take from other people. Well, I, I say this. Man's entitlement and his exalted view of himself, we'll just say before God Almighty, man is not entitled to anything. If God's going to begin to hand out checks based on what we've earned and what we've done, we're all going to receive judgment, anger, wrath, and eternal fire in hell. Boy, I tell you, if, if the government handed checks out based on what people done through the week, how much work they done, things would be different, wouldn't they? But see, the government rewards for the less you do. They, they don't encourage you to work. They encourage you to lay at the house and do nothing. And we're going to reward you for that because, because you're entitled to it. There's nobody entitled to anything before God. But if, if we do receive now, if we receive something from God... It's only by grace. It's that that's unmerited and unwarranted. It's a gift. God is being gratuitous to us. He's giving us that that we've unearned. And so if we're not entitled to anything, then anything that we receive from God is unearned and unwarranted. God, God gives earthly good an earthly blessing to those that even mock and make fun of His name and His Word. That's how good that God is. I don't believe God could ever be accused of not being good. He is good. He's merciful. And He's long-suffering. And He's gracious. And He has given, I tell you, above and beyond what you and I would ever give. So who's given? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. Now this is, this is something you ought to take note. This is something we don't want. We don't want God to recompense us. Our reward. But you know the hope of the church is that the Lord Jesus came and, and He done a work. He came and He gave Himself for our sins and He came and lived a, a perfect life. 
And our hope as the church, them that are born again, is when, when we leave this world, we're not going to receive the recompense of our reward. We're not going to receive what we've earned from God. But we're going to receive His reward. His goodness. You know how that is? That's unmerited. That's unwarranted. That is solely the gift and gratuity of God Almighty. Both before and after salvation, only to the Lord be glory. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Now these little words here that seem to be meaningless have a lot of meaning in them. For of Him. That word of, it means origin. The point which motion proceeds. So the origin of all things are in God. Because outside of God, what would there be? If God spoke the world into existence, if all things were created by Him and for Him, and and that's what His Word teaches, and if all things were uh, consisted by Him, and so that all things are held together by the power of God, and the Word teaches that as well, that by the same Word, the world that now is, is kept in store. It's reserved, and it's kept by God's power, reserved unto the day of judgment. And so God has created all things, God's keeping all things in order and together by His power. God has given life to all of men. God's gave of this world to man as He sees fit. And God's given His Son unto the world. Man didn't work the Son out. It wasn't by male and female reproduction that the Son came into the world. And, you know, I I believe a part of the reason that God waited so long for Jesus to be born, I mean thousands of years from the promise that was made to Eve until the Lord Jesus is born. He's waiting long enough that I, the dummy I am, would realize that it's not by natural production that Jesus is going to come. But for thousands of years, sons of Adam and daughters of Adam brought forth children. And because the tree was corrupt, all of their seed was corrupt. And over and over again, a child was born and the child was a sinner. This is not the promise of God. But the promise of God came at the fullness of time. The appointed time that God chose, that God appointed, and that God set. And the Spirit of God came upon a woman and God placed His seed in her womb. So salvation, the very origin, not just of the world, not just of the life of the flesh, but the origin of redemption was in God and in God's action. Man did not first move towards God. God is acting God is promising and now God's carrying out. And Mary brings forth a son. She calls his name Jesus. And all that man done for Jesus other than 
a small handful of people as they opposed Him and they questioned Him and they despised Him and they crucified Him. And so it's not by man's works that we have this salvation, but it's of Him and through Him. So that word through, it's the channel of an act. So the, the water comes into the building through the water line. The water line is the channel that the water gets here. The power comes on the power lines. The lines are a channel for the electricity to get here. And so God is the channel that this goodness reaches unto us. If it were not for God, now though Jesus Christ had died and resurrected and this salvation was preached as it was on the day of Pentecost and the good news of God is going out to the whole world, yet God had to come to us that the goodness of this redemption might reach us. So it originated in God. There would be no salvation outside of God. And it reached us through God, through His direction and through His power and to Him. You know why this was done? This was done unto His glory, His honor, and His praise. If there was now, if we believe these verses, if there was no cause for God to save me on my part, if I gave God nothing and I gave Him no reason to save me, if I could do nothing to help my sinful condition and if I didn't do anything to help my sinful condition, and it was God that sent His Son And it was God that came to where we were. And it was God that convicted us. It was God that regenerated us. It was God that drew us. Then all things are are to Him. And I can't even say, well, I I did this and this this is really what saved me. And if you're not careful, we can fall into that. Well, I came to God and that's what saved me neglecting that God awoke us and that's why we came to God. It was God working in all things to bring us unto Himself. And to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Whose name should be exalted? Who should be thanked for this work? Who should receive praise and glory and honor for what's been done. Does the church deserve glory? You know where the church originated? In God. And if it were not for God, there wouldn't be a church. What about the preacher? Should he receive glory and exaltation? Well, if it wasn't for God the man would have never been saved and he would have never been called and he wouldn't have been equipped to do the work. See, everything goes back to God and what God's done. What you've got, you've got it because God freely gave it to you. And we can't say, well, it's because I went to liberty and it's because Greg's the preacher. That's why that God saved me. 
And if we go there, we're missing. Honest to God, we're missing where liberty and where Greg came from. It was by the power of God. And to God be the glory for all things that He's provided forever. Amen. So that word, that means verily, truly. This is the truth. God has plucked us as brands from the burning and brought us into His kingdom by His power to His glory and to His glory alone. And so chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, in light of everything that God has done. That's that's what therefore means. When you see that, He's tying this thought together with what's coming previous. And a lot of times you, you really can't help it in preaching. You've, you've just got such a short time, you can't look at a big bunch of chapters. And what's done is, well, we start here in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. And what it's made is works-based. But we're able to do the service as a result of what God has already done. And as we said last time, to put trust in what we're doing and miss the work of God. That's missing the whole point of what he's covered in the first 11 chapters. We're in the latter half of the book now and we're just now getting to what I need to be doing. But if we skip the first 11 chapters and we just start, all right, this is how I need to live and then God will bless me. Well, I've I've missed the whole message of the book. The message of the book is because God has blessed me and God has awakened me and God has drew me and changed me, now I can work as a result of the seed of the Word of God that was planted in my heart. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So this now is in light of what God has already done. Can't stress that enough. If you live this to the T and you do your best to sacrifice yourself to God outside of Jesus, it's unacceptable. God can't approve a sinful sacrifice outside of the work of the Lord Jesus. But notice he says beseech. The word means to call near, to invite, to invoke by imploration or consolation. So in the Old Testament, God said thou shalt not and thou shalt. It was commandments, authoritative, ruling. Now I I believe this. I believe God has a, a way, a means, a manner, a behavior that God expects His people to live as they walk through this world. But it's not a commandment to make you afraid and fear judgment It's a beseeching. Because we're not talking to people now that are blind 
and that are corrupted by sin. As Moses gave the law, he's given it to an Israel that's fallen and under the influence and leadership and guise of the devil. And so they, they had to have something that would smack them on the head when they sinned. It's just like the speed limit. If the speed limit was a $5 fine and your insurance didn't go up, would you obey the speed limit? But you know what it is? It's that four or $500 plus court cost. And then it's that, well, my insurance is going to go up so much every month for the next two or three years. And it's that fear of that judgment and that penalty, that's what keeps me off the gas pedal. And so it's the, the weightiness of the penalty that gives the law its power and its authority. And if you take away, and our, our country would like to take away the penalty of the law, just let them go. If you take away the penalty of the law, then the law is absolutely worthless. And so the Old Testament law, it had penalty. And a lot of it was death. You can kill a dozen people today and we don't want to kill you because the death penalty, that's evil. But you know why that's there? So that people don't go out and kill other people. Because if I do that, they're going to kill me. I realize it's not going to keep everybody in line, but that's the reason that the law is designed in that way. And so the Old Testament law had the penalty. In the New Testament, it's different because Paul here is writing to the church of people that God has made new creatures and that now, though outwardly in the flesh, they are still sinful in desire. Inwardly, they're new creatures. And the grace and power of God is the influence of their heart. And in them that are truly saved now, the inward man has a desire to please God. In them that are saved, there is a God-granted and God-given desire to please God. And those that do not care about God and about God's Word, that is an absolute sign that they are unregenerate. The Spirit of God does not dwell in them and God is not working. But Paul says, I beseech. And to them that are saved, that's what the Word of God does. It invites and it draws. And as it says in Song of Solomon, now she's in love with Solomon. She loves him madly. And she says, if, if you'll draw me, if you'll open the door for me, draw me and we'll run after thee. You know why she's going to do that? She loves him. And so the Lord Jesus, the Lord draws his church and inwardly there's that love for the Lord Jesus and the church follows doesn't have to be goaded doesn't have to be whipped doesn't have to be scolded by man man's trying to scold people into line and so often it's man trying to herd goats like he would sheep and that won't work 
And so I beseech you by, so there that word is again, the channel of an act. How can we be beseeched? By the mercies. That word means pity. The suffering of one excited by the distress of another. And so God's pity for us. God pitied our condition. And because of His pity for our souls, He was brought into suffering. It was that pity that brought the Lord Jesus to the cross to redeem man out of sin and out of the wrath of God. So how can we be beseeched to present our bodies only by and through the mercy of God? If there's no mercy of God, then there's no sacrifice whatsoever that I can offer to the Lord. They were in the Old Testament in Isaiah. They were going down to the temple and they were offering their bullocks and their lambs and they were going through the motions of religion. And God said through Isaiah, they that slay a bullock, they that slay an ox, it's as if they slew a man. Even their offering to God was sin because they were sinners. And there's mankind today outside of the work of God in Jesus Christ, outside of salvation, we've got nothing we can present unto God that is acceptable. But we are acceptable to God through Jesus and through Him alone. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Holy, sacred, pure or consecrated. That that's set apart for service unto God. Is that not what the church is? Set apart from the world. Holy and acceptable. That word means fully agreeable. Which is your reasonable service. That word means rational. With thinking, with logic. So in Philippians, let's look through this verse just a little bit. Philippians chapter number 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the origination of this work. If I'm going to offer my body as a living sacrifice unto God, this work's origin... The place where this work began was the work that God done in me. God began the work and it's God's grace that continues the work. And without the grace of God, I can't stand here and boldly say, I'll never do any of that. I'll never take part in this sin. Man can't claim that. Man can say, by the grace of God, I'll never do that. But without the grace and the continuing work of God, there's no end to where we would go. We're foolish outside of the grace of God. In Genesis chapter number 1, I believe we've got a good picture of this work that God began and it's man that is allowed to continue that. In Genesis 1, God's created the heavens, the earth... God's created man 
And there He's put man in the garden. God made a place for Adam to dwell. Now outside of God, there would be no earth, there would be no garden, and there would be no man. But this is what God says, and God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Chapter 2, verse 15, And the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And so God there, He created Adam and Eve. He placed them there in the garden. And He said, Now you uh, uh, dress and keep this garden and you subdue the earth and rule over it. Be fruitful and multiply. And so God, God gave them something to do. But you see how impossible that Adam and Eve's dressing and keeping the garden would be if there was no garden to begin with. How could Adam and Eve subdue the earth if there was never an earth? That's pretty elementary. It's, it's impossible. Well, how can we present our bodies to God if God's not done a work in us? It's just as impossible as Adam and Eve doing a work without being created. <coughs> not possible. And so we are able to offer our service to God through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And so a living sacrifice. All through the Old Testament, all that could be offered, the lambs, the turtle doves, the oxes, the goats, they were a dead sacrifice. Their blood was shed. Their bodies were burned. Parts of them were eaten. Parts of them were disposed of. But they were... Uh, they had no life in them, and what they were was irrational. They had no ability, no logic, no thinking. And as they were being led by their masters to have their throat cut and their blood to come out, they did not know what they were doing. They didn't know that they were going to the slaughter. They didn't know that they were going to be killed. They were being led there irrationally, like a beast. But we are to be a living sacrifice. Paul says in Galatians chapter number 2 and verse 20, we probably know this one by heart as well, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So Paul is a living sacrifice. He's crucified with Christ, but he's not on a cross. This is not in the flesh. But his life has been given for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's crucified, he says in one place, and I didn't write this down, What's crucified is the affections, the lusts, and the longings of the flesh. Paul says, I've, I've set aside what my flesh would desire and want for myself. 
that I might labor for God and for His glory. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And this living sacrifice now, that's able to glorify God. That ox, once it's dead, it's not able to give any glory. But God's saving a people now that through their life can glorify the God that redeemed them. In Psalm, the 69th Psalm, verse number 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns and hooves. You know what's pleasing to God better than sacrifice? Well, Samuel tells Saul that obedience is better than sacrifice. But you know, though we could offer a great and costly offering out of our wallet or out of our bank unto the Lord, what's pleasing to God is the praise and worship of those that He saved and that God is God's chosen as we read in the 22nd Psalm last Wednesday. God has chosen to inhabit the praises of Israel. There God chooses to dwell upon the glory and the praise of His people that He's redeemed and that He's saved. He says in Hosea 14.2, He's talking about the work of the Lord and we'll come down and render unto Him the calves of our lips. Not a bleeding, dying sacrifice, but here is a living, breathing people that are the results of the work of the grace of God. And their lives as they live and navigate this world, their lives are designed and meant to give glory to the one that redeemed them. Not by living like the world, but being different than. Their bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Holy, set apart and consecrated for the work of the Lord. Now is that not what the church, the called out, ought to be? Holy, consecrated unto God, and acceptable, fully agreeable to the Word and to the will of God Almighty. You'd be surprised at how many people say God led me to do that that is absolutely contrary to His Scripture. Now, will God lead me to do something that's not fully agreeable to His Word? It can happen. So He says, holy and acceptable unto God. Fully agreeable. God's gave us a, a guideline for our lives. That that we might follow and that that we might be uh, invest ourselves in to be the, the road map and guide as we walk in this world. And if I'm going to go contrary to the Word of God, I'm not fully agreeable with God. Do we agree about that? And so in, in 1 Peter 2 and 9, Peter here is talking about the church. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, 
a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So Peter, as, as this apostle writes, what's the purpose of the church? Why is there a living, breathing church on this earth? It's, we're the chosen generation and the people that God has set aside to offer Him the praise as we live in this world for the mighty work that He's done. It was Him that called us out of darkness and in delight. And it's Him that ought to be the object of our praise and worship. There's a lot of reliance, though, on ourselves today. And the more I rely on me, the less glory there is to God. John the Baptist said, I must decrease and He must increase. But wouldn't you agree that if I increase, He decreases? And the more I ascribe to me, the more I ascribe to my wisdom, the more I ascribe to my effort and my work and my labor, the less God gets glory for what He's done. And so Paul, even, even the greatest apostle, the apostle that labored more than all the other apostles, he said, I've outlabored them, yet not I, but the grace of God that's within me. Paul recognized that the place where his work originated was in the work that God had done for him. And so Paul's labor as an apostle was to the glory of God. His changed life as an apostle was to the glory of God. And the church, which in times past were not a people, are now made a people to glorify the name of the Lord which is your reasonable service. So that, that is taken oftentimes, and it's been said here before, that God's not asking something unreasonable of me. And that's, that's very, very true. If God's gave all that He's gave, should I not give my life for Him? But that's not what He means here. It's not, well, God's not being unreasonable, you ought to just do it. But what he's saying is it's rational or logical. That I, as a rational creature, I'm not like the, the ox that was going to be offered to God, but that had no idea that he was being offered to God. But we, as rational and logical creatures, we see what God has done for us. We see how that He saved us and changed us. We see that He gave all of these things for us. And that brings out of us a desire to please Him and to offer ourselves to Him. Not unknowingly, not unwittingly, but we see and we understand and that, honest to God, that ought to be our desire that's brought forth out of what God's done for us. Lord, help me to offer myself unto God for your glory and for your honor. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable 
and perfect will of God. And I just noticed that we're out of time. So we'll pick up there, verse 2, next time, Lord willing. Anything on your heart you'd like to say, you'd like to add?